0: quite a passage. (laughs) We are finishing today our sermon series that's going through the big story of the Bible. So the last message we're taking from the last book of the Bible on Revelation. So we're going to dig into this this passage about this fearsome beast. And I want to try to help make sense of it for us this morning. Generally, we're not too afraid of beasts out there. Right? We don't face ferocious beasts too often in our day-to-day lives. But there was a time, once, when uh, back in our previous house in Zanesville, Ohio, we started getting calls from the, the church ladies saying, don't let your kids go outside. There are ferocious beasts on the loose. Well, <laughs> and it was true. A guy who lived about two miles from us had collected a large amount of exotic animals, the fancy term. He had uh, 18 Bengal tigers, 17 lions, six black bears, he had leopards, monkeys, all kinds of animals. And his name is Terry Thompson, and this is in October of 2011. And life was getting tough for Terry, he had been in prison. He was facing charges. His marriage was falling apart. And, and to be honest, Terry decided to go out with a bang. And so he opened up all the cages, and he committed suicide. And so all of a sudden, the police start getting calls of, there's a lion chasing my horse. And um, I guess there was a, a lion. So, so Terry lived right next to Interstate 70, like this major throughway in Ohio, um, and I guess a line got onto Interstate 70, and so they were all over the place. The animals started to spread out. The 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 sheriff got called out, and his hope was to be able to to save the animals, to to contain the situation. Um, but night was approaching, and when they tried to shoot them with uh, tranquilizer darts. It, the animal actually got more aggressive, and his deputies were in danger. And so sadly, they had to kill, they had to shoot dead a whole host of animals. And, and I get, that sheriff got so, many hate, so much hate mail from people all over. If you look it up on Google and you put um, Zanesville exotic animals, you'll see two, two things on Google. One is escape, and the other is massacre, so it ended up all those animals were killed. There's warnings. They canceled school the next day. But for a little time, these, these animals, the, the ferocious beasts, were on the loose. And, and the national news showed up at, at Dainesville, Ohio, this rural area where, where he lived. And that the big trucks were parked out front. Today's passage is about a fearsome beast intent on fighting God's people. And there's a sense of, there could even be a sense of fear. As we were, do we need to be a, afraid of, of, of a beast that would come and, and attack Christians? Christians throughout church history have, have tried to figure out who's the beast, right? Figure out how, try to identify the beast. Is it some political figure, you know, some general somewhere, some ruler of a faraway country? Um, what I want to start with today is think that the revelation is an amazing book, and it's given to encourage followers of Christ to, to, in their worship and, and to stay faithful. But here's what I'm going to say. American Christians have been taught to read this book in the wrong way. Revelation is not given to provide hidden clues that predict modern world events or political leaders 2,000 years after it was written. That is not the way. God, God, God did not give us this book so that we could piece together the clues and make our charts and see, obviously, you know, Prince Harry is the beast who was to come. Or, it's nothing like that, right? Um, so I, I know someone will just take that quote. No, Prince Harry is not the beast. Um, right? Revelation is given for this reason. It's given us to get a glimpse of the big story of God's plan, of what He's doing. It's given us a picture of what it looks like from God's perspective. And there's all kinds of vivid imagery within this. But if you get to the end, you see the culmination of the plan when God's kingdom is fully on earth. And it says, There'll be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has gone away. And he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, because all the pain and suffering that comes in this world, we'll see then, and then we'll understand what God has been about all this time. That's the purpose of Revelation, and, and that, that followers of Christ would stay faithful until that day. In the last five messages of, uh, of the series, let me, let me just kind of recap a little bit just so you have a sense of of what we're doing. So uh, back in early January, we talked about the victory of Jesus, how Jesus is raised from the dead. He is now alive forevermore, and it says he holds the key to death and Hades. In other words, he can give eternal life to those who trust in him. Then we talked about the mystery revealed, meaning the good news of the gospel has now been made known so that that people can come and discover the goodness of God and, and salvation through Jesus. And then we talked about how the church is spreading, how it started with 120 in Jerusalem and it's been spreading ever since, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. And then I talked last week about how God is building a people for himself, a spiritual temple out of living stones. that that the church now represents God on earth. We're how people see what God is like. We are are that spiritual temple. So those are the things. Those are all good news of what God is up to in this world, and that's all good news. I would be remiss if I did not give this truth today, and would not give the warning that comes in Revelation. Believers in Christ will face opposition and at times persecution for the sake of Christ. When you sign on to Jesus, you have an enemy. An enemy who has been um, working against God and his people since the very beginning. To even give a bigger picture, there is an unseen spiritual battle that has been taking place longer than we can imagine since the very beginning. I realize that as I say that, that sounds like a movie plot. Right? How many movies have been like that where you you know some person discovers that there's this unseen war that's been taking place and now that they're a part of it? Like I, you, there's numerous ones. And and I'm gonna nerd out for one minute and share with you my favorite sci fi series ever. This is it's not Star Trek. This is the sci-fi series that other nerds make fun of me for liking. Seriously. It's called Babylon 5. It was from the 1990s. I had my kids watch it with me. They made fun of the graphics because it was all like the early days of computer graphics and stuff. But I love it. And, And in that series humans finally get into space travel and technology gets to the point where they're interacting with other alien races and they find out, you, you find out that there's this, this secret war that has been taking place between two ancient alien species and now the human, human race is going to get involved in that war. And I, put a, I don't know if you can, how well you can see it on the screen, but the picture of the, the bad guys, they look like demons. Right? It's the picture, one of the, one of those ancient races. And and here's why I share this. Is this the, the guy who wrote this series was tapping in to this idea that we get out of revelation of this, this unseen battle? I think the reason why there's so many movies that use that theme is because there's a reality behind it. Not alien races or Babylon 5 or anything like that, but there's a reality that that it kind of and, and so that it clicks in our minds because of that, and so Revelation twelve. To understand our passage in Revelation thirteen, we got to first deal with Revelation twelve. And Revelation twelve says this: There was a war in heaven. War arose in the heavenly realms between God and his his angels. Some of his angels who rebelled against him. So Revelation 12 is talking about, about that. And it's using the, the mythic storytelling techniques of, of Greek myth. Right? It's using this vivid imagery. And so the main character in this is the dragon. And it talks about the dragon. And so let me give you five things that, to, to understand what's going on. And I'm doing it. This, this deserves its own sermon, but I want to talk about the beast. So this is to set us up to understand. So the dragon is the ancient serpent, the same one that was in the Garden of Eden that deceived Adam and Eve. It was the ancient serpent. Think what a dragon is. The dragon is a serpent that can fly, a really big serpent that can fly, right? So the dragon is the deceiver. It's Satan or the devil. The dragon, it says in Revelation 12, sought to devour Christ before the Father would raise him to the throne. And what this seems to be saying is that Satan was resentful of Jesus. That Jesus would be the one exalted to be ruler and lord of all. That Satan aspired, that Satan was an angel at the time. And he aspired to that himself. And so he he tried to stop it, but could not. The dragon then initiated a rebellion against God and a third of the angels of the time joined with him and that's where you have a war taking place in heaven. The the dragon, Satan and his angels were defeated and it says they were cast to earth. They were defeated in the heavenly realms, but he's now still operating in the realm of earth. In then, the dragon has sought to destroy God's people ever since. He, it talks a lot in Revelation 12 how, he, how, how it tried to defeat a woman. And I'll tell you that that woman represents the Old Testament Jewish people. The, the, the faithful of the Old Testament Jewish people. That, that You'll see if you read the Old Testament how often there was wars that tried to, to uh, destroy the Jewish people. That was initiated by the dragon. Nevertheless, God over time continually protected his people. And now the last verse, the, the first one that, that um, we read today, is the dragon is now intent to make war against the other offspring of that woman. So if the woman represents the Jewish people, the first offspring is Jesus. Jesus came, came from the Jewish people. He was the Jewish Messiah. So if Jesus is the first offspring, who are the other offspring? It would be the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Those who hold to the testimony of Christ, of Jesus. So this whole story, it gets to the point of here. We have an enemy. There is one who wants to, to make war against followers of Christ, who is against God's people in our life and in our world. Now, let me say this. Satan is real but he's not a literal dragon. That's a vivid imagery that conveys spiritual reality. Satan is real. He is an unseen spiritual being that can operate in this world, and he operates most often in our our minds, in in our thinking, and in the cultural works of this world. And So that leads us to Revelation 13. What will the enemy use... To make war against the followers of Christ. So it said the dragon, raging and ferocious, you know, raging against against God, it says he stood on the sands of the sea. And then what happened? He called forth out of the sea the beast. The beast has ten horns with ten diadems on, on the horns, has seven heads. It's described as three different ferocious animals, like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. This is all evoking a previous scripture, one actually I talked about way back in November. It's all drawing from an Old Testament passage from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there were four different beasts that emerged from the sea. One like a lion, one like a bear, and one like a leopard. And then the fourth one had iron teeth. It doesn't associate with an animal. And we are told in Daniel 7 that those beasts would represent the world empires, or the great empires that would rule over the the people of God, the, the Jewish people at the time. And so I I made the case that one was Babylon, one was Persia, one was the Greek Hellenistic kingdoms, and then the last would be the would be Rome. So what what Revelation does, knowing he's writing to people who know about Daniel seven, he takes the four beasts of Daniel seven and merges them into one mega beast. Right, the the beast of Revelation thirteen is a fusion of the the four beasts of Daniel 7. So the total number of heads in Daniel 7 was seven heads. You have a seven-headed beast. Ten horns, ten horns. Um, So you you have lion, bear, and leopard. Uh, The mega-beast has lion, bear, and leopard aspects to it. So it's like all four beasts merging into one. We do not need to guess who the beast is. Revelation spells it out. It, it does everything but say the actual word. The, the beast is the Roman Empire. A few little clues it gives. It says, the beast sits upon seven hills. Rome is famously known with its seven hills. That, that, that's an, in, the clues in an ancient world. Another thing it says, it says the beast uh, destroys Jerusalem, which is exactly what happened, what, what Rome did in 70 AD, destroying the temple. So so it's not a guessing game. The, 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 the original recipients of Revelation would have read this and, and recognized, oh yeah, it's, it's talking about Rome. It's using code words, but it's talking about Rome. And, and what had happened with the Rome Empire is that it had become a mega beast. So... So I have a map on the screen. I know you probably can't see it perfectly well. Maybe you could find a map on your own. This is Rome in 117 AD. Revelation was written between 90 and 95 AD, around that time frame. So it's, so it's about the same time. This was the peak of the Roman Empire. And, and its rule incorporated the, the places like Babylon and Greece that had previously been the beast of Daniel, um, not Persia, because that, thats the Parthians. That's—it's that's almost there. But but basically, the Roman Empire has kind of incorporated the previous beasts, and now has has become this this mega beast. And what and and what it is 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 the, the both for Jews and Christians at that time almost all were in. The Roman Empire. Almost all of them fell under the authority of, of Rome. There was probably some, but not very many who, who, who had taken the faith outside of out of out of Rome. What Revelation 13 is saying is that the source of of Rome's ascension and power and authority is the dragon. Rome got its its authority, it's its ability to do that from God's enemy. And that's what it says in in 13.2. It says that the dragon gave to the beast um, his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon wants to use the beast for his own purposes. And so he gives it to the authority. Um, It says also every tribe and people and language and nation, all all who dwell on earth. Now it wasn't earth. Um, like obviously the Americas and, and China were not a part of this, but like I said, the those who who worshiped God at the time would have been within in this under under this beast. And it says so so that's what the dragon does for the beast. What does the beast do in term? The beast worships the dragon, it says in verse four. Um, and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast who can fight against it so the the beast worships the dragon and also and and demands that people worship the himself as well in verse 5 it talks about blaspheming god which i think is talking about the pagan worship how god is the true creator and instead they they in the pagan worship of that time the polytheistic Worship of both Rome and Greece, they gave credit for creation not to God Almighty, but to these other gods, to to Jupiter and Neptune and and the the gods of Rome. So so we have this 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 contrast, and, and so what the dragon is doing is he's trying to move uh, Christians followers of Christ to worshiping instead of worshiping uh, their Savior to worship. The beasts are to worship the dragons. There, there are some other elements I want to point out more quickly um, that I think are harder to interpret. So, from our passage, a few other things, I, but I, 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 these are more, I think this is what this means. So, for example, it talks about the head with a mortal wound, but that nevertheless recovers. So, who was the first Caesar? I heard it. Julius, right? Julius Caesar he started a dynasty, uh, in fact, under Julius Caesar and then Augustus Caesar, Rome went from being a republic to being an empire under an emperor. right So, so the first dynasty of the Caesars of Rome ended in sixty eight BC when Nero died. Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome and the last of Rome's first dynasty, the, the Julio-Claudians, they're called, right? So in 68 AD, may, you may have thought, oh, Nero's dead. You know, all Rome won't continue, right? You know, this, the Caesars are not done. But what happened instead is a new dynasty arose. They're called the Flavians. The Flavian dynasties, let me just read this, the Flavians, unlike the Julio-Claudians before them were Italian gentry, not Roman aristocracy. They restored stability to Rome following the reign of Nero and the civil wars that had wreaked havoc on the empire, particularly on Italy itself. So there's t- this tumultuous time from the death of Nero and really hit the end of his rule until you had a new emperor, Vespasian, who then brought stability to Rome. So the mortal wound, I believe, is referring to that that restoration of a new dynasty. It also, in verse 5, talks about 42 months, a period of 42 months. That's three and a half years. That is the length of time of the Jewish rebellion, from 66 to 70. And so it was a period of time in the Holy Land where the Roman armies were were fighting against the, the Jewish insurgents, and it ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. And so I think it's a reference to that. Later in verse 7, it talks about that he would make war on the saints and conquer them. I believe that's a reference to the Christians under the great persecution of Nero. In Rome, Nero was was killing off Christians. He blamed the Christians for the, the bad things that were happening in Rome, blamed them for the great fire that, that happened under his time. And so uh, it was an intense persecution where they were even setting Christians on fire and using them as, as, as lamps to light the streets. And so I think this is a reference to, to that, that particular period. So all of these events, like the persecution of Nero, the destruction of Jerusalem, they were within the lifetime of the believers who first got the book of Revelation in 98 AD or so. It would be for them about what 9-11 is for us, about 20-some years prior. So think about that, and, and think about how you would feel if you were a Christian, and you would remember back 20 years ago how you were risking life to, to do this. And um, not, there was still ongoing persecution, but it hadn't got as intense again. So, so th- all those are part of what Revelation is talking about. um. To understand this, we also have to understand another aspect. It is comparing um, this to the image of Jesus that we've seen in Revelation so far. This is not something we've read yet. But maybe you know, how did Jesus appear in Revelation 5? What what did he look like? We have a song that goes with it. He is known as the, the Lion of Judah as well as the lamb. So Jesus himself has the appearance of two animals, right? The lion referring to his his role as king and his lamb as in how he would bring salvation by giving his life on the cross. So Jesus is the lion lamb. The beast is a pseudo-copy of the Savior, right? He's a false He's a false um, type of beast, a pseudocopy. Uh, the, the beast claims kingship that rightfully belongs to the lion of Judah. The, 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 the beast claims to be the savior, but he's not. Only the savior who gave his life. So the, be, the beast is arrogating to himself the worship and honor that are rightfully due to Christ. And since behind the beast lies the dragon, those who go along with the worship of the beast are in truth worshiping God's enemy, even if they don't realize it in what they're doing. This is what Revelation is showing to the believers in Christ. If you worship, if you join in the worship of Rome and its gods, you are actually worshiping Satan. Think about Roman propaganda. Rome did not view itself as as a bad guy, right? In Rome's telling, they were, they brought stability. They brought order. They brought peace, Pax Romana. In their land, they brought roads. The the Roman roads still, you know, they, they really did make good roads, right? The Roman roads still exist in areas they brought prosperity as trade increased. People in the, the Roman Empire, many, especially the, the elite, they got wealthier and wealthier because of Rome than they would have otherwise. They brought aqueducts. Imagine if for the first time you have indoor plumbing because of Rome, right? Like that, That's big, right? Rome brought indoor plumbing, so you're going to be grateful to Rome and, and so Rome would say, be glad we've come. All we ask is you honor Rome and its gods. Both the pagan gods of old, Zeus, Jupiter, and such. And then also honor you know, the Roman state gods. By the time of, of 90 AD, Rome had deified Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and Tiberius Caesar. They had their own temples. And so to be a good citizen of Rome, you were expected to offer incense in worship to the Roman imperial cult. And they had established these things. And, and, and to not go along, right, was to, to be dishonoring to Rome, who had brought so many good things to your land. Sometimes we have this idea that Rome conquered everybody and made them become part of the Roman Empire. For the most part, people joined Rome willingly, especially the area of Western uh, Asia Minor, which is now in Turkey, where the, uh, the Book of Revelation was written to the, the names of the seven cities, um, Smyrna and Ephesus and Sardis and Laodicea. Those cities in their area... They, they joined Rome of their own accord. And they saw Rome as a benefactor. Uh, they were not conquered by Rome. They chose to side with Rome. In fact, so I, don't, I know, you know you probably read in the news there was a, a major earthquake in that area in western Turkey, the same area as these cities. And it seems to be, and it, it's horrible. We should definitely pray and, and pray for those people. And, and God, God would help them. Uh, but it seems to me that's an area prone to earthquakes. So Rome had oftentimes sent aid to these cities. I've, you can, I've, I've read it about how some of these cities received aid from Rome after an earthquake to rebuild. So they, they didn't see Rome as this beast, as this evil thing. They saw Rome as good. And, and so if you were a Christian, your neighbors would be, would be asking, how come, how come you didn't come to the, the festival? Hey, did, did you come and offer incense to to Caesar? How come? Right? Well, don't don't you don't you respect Rome? Right? Your neighbors that don't believe would be adding to the pressure of, of saying you need to honor Rome and its gods. But for Christians to go along with emperor worship was to to be worshiping God's enemy. We have a letter from Trajan, who was a Roman emperor around this time, and it says, if someone was accused of being a Christian, they're worthy of death. But he says, but if, if they're willing to offer incense to, to Caesar, in, to, to the, you know, if they're willing to go along with the worship, then let them go. That was the choice. Do you worship the beast? Or do you face death? Do you give the honor that should rightfully go to the lamb upon the throne and instead give honor to the beast who is a false savior? So what is the call upon Christians in this scenario? Is it to take up arms and fight back? Is it to go all Spartacus and get an army and, and try to, to overthrow the Roman power? No. Nope. It says, here is a call. Um, well, it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be saying. God is choosing to allow this persecution for a time for his own purposes. And there's no strategy for avoiding it. God is allowing this to take place and the call for Christians is endurance, to to endure and to be faithful as followers of Jesus Christ. To endure and stay faithful to the Lord. To not give in to the pressure to worship the false gods of the culture. So that's the gist of it. That's what the beast is about. Does it set your mind at ease at all? Would you rather face, you know, literal dragons and bears? And the good thing is, there's absolutely no application for us in our time. Because we don't know what it's like to have an imperious authority over us, telling us what we're allowed to believe or not believe or... Say or what's not to say? We've never had a spot where we're pressured into going along with cultural worldview ideas. We don't know anything about that. I'm being sarcastic. This is totally valid. You know, the specifics about Rome and such, you know, for the beast, we're there, but we we face the same dynamic. Right? We're facing different specifics, but the same dynamic applies to followers of Christ in every age. Because the dragon is always trying to use the society and culture we live in to move believers away from true and faithful worship. He's always trying to move our loyalty away from God and God alone to give our loyalty to something else. It may look different. It may not involve persecution. In fact, Oftentimes it doesn't. But we still will always face the pressure to to go along with, with, instead of worshiping Jesus, worshiping something else. There's four truths I want you to learn from Revelation. First of all this, to know that following Jesus means we have an enemy who is working against God's plans and people. You got got to know it. Know that going in. So be prepared. In the times where there is peace, build your faith now so that you are ready. Because we never know what will come next. Um, The way to be ready to counter the lies and deception is to grow strong in the truth. This is why we want to study his word and, and know it. The way to be ready to face the deceiver is to to be strong in the truth. So let me give you a passage. Ephesians 6. And it's talking about the spiritual, um, the reality of, of spiritual warfare. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The call on Christians is to endure and be faithful, whatever we face. The second thing I want you to know, um, what well, I just said it, to be prepared to endure and stay faithful to the Lord through opposition here's the thing. The goal of Satan is not to kill us. In fact, that does him no good, right? If, if he engineers our death and we know Jesus, what happens? We go, be, we go be with Jesus, right? We're in perfect bliss and, and, you know, and we wait the day when the full resurrection will take place, right? So, That does him no good. His only goal is to turn us away from Jesus, and he does that by giving us something else instead, to give our life, to give our loyalty to something else. And so what are we to do? We're to be so so in love with Christ our Lord, so committed to him that we can't imagine ever wanting to follow another. 1 Peter 5 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, brothers and sisters throughout the world. Resist him. Stand firm. Know that there's there's nowhere else to turn. Jesus is the Savior, and he's worth it. The third thing I want you to, to know From Revelation. I want you to understand the tools the enemy will use to turn us from Christ. Prosperity is more dangerous to faith than persecution. I think we're seeing that in the American church. We have plenty of prosperity. Prosperity is more dangerous to faith than persecution. Satan is just as happy if we stop worshiping our Savior because with too many other things going on in our life. He knows that this world will slowly erode our faith unless we are constantly renewed from within. Friends, this is why worship is so vital. What do we do in worship? We come for a focused hour or so, and we, we, we take our view off of ourselves our stuff, our agenda, and we give our, our full attention to him alone. Right? We need that at least once a week to take the attention off of ourselves. Everything in this world says pay attention to yourself. Find your own inner meaning and purpose. In worship, we do the opposite of that. And we give our focus to him and to his word as we, we do. And we need that. See, one of the most amazing books you could read is called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I see some nodding heads. And you know, sometimes I think we think of Satan and the power of Satan like we picture the exorcist, you know, and, and divine power killing people. C.S. Lewis, I think, gets a better idea. It's It's how it's a book about how the enemy uses lies and deception to keep us from seeing truths that we need to see. So if you, if you ever want to tune in, it's, it's a fun book to read anyways. But it, it's about how he keeps us from seeing things truly. The, let me read this quote. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. But it's given in a, a, a paraphrased version that I really like. And I think this captures the, the dangers of his faith. It says, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers... As an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Here's the key line. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Instead, we offer our, ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices as we worship. Fourth truth from Revelation. I want you to have confidence that despite these hardships, that God is in control and the kingdom of Christ will prevail. Talked about the lion and the lamb. And at one point, John, in seeing the vision of all this place takes place, he's wondered, with all this, what could save us? And it says, do not weep. The lion of Judah has triumphed. Do not weep. And it says that the lion, that Jesus will take a hold of, of the scroll of God, and, and he will in, in this world unfold the plan of God to bring salvation as the The seals of the scroll are opened. So do not weep. The Lamb of God has taken up the scroll. And when God's people see it, you get, you get this verse from Revelation 5:9, it says, "And the people of God sang a new song saying, "Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." The good news is, is we, we have read the end of the book. We know who wins. We need not fear no matter what happens. Have you ever heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Some of you, yeah. So he was a German theologian, um, really smart guy, who was a pastor in Germany in the 1920s and then into 1930. And you may know the gist of this. Un- under the, using the trauma of World War I and economic upheaval, Adolf Hitler um, Gain control in Germany and the Nazi Party. Hitler convinced Germany to to not just make him their their chancellor. He convinced Germany to give their full loyalty to him. And and if you watch the 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 mo- movie reels of the time, right, you get see cheering crowds. They they thought Hitler was was the the solution they were looking for. Well one of the things the Nazis did is they took over the church. They put one of their own in charge of the main Protestant church, which is the, the German Evangelical Church, and the guy in charge is Ludwig Miller. In the picture, he's shaking hands there with, with Hitler. And so he began to slowly change the theology of of the church to fit in line with the Aryan beliefs, such as the the, the Aryans was the master race, and... They, they, they were forced, if anyone had any Jewish ancestry, you weren't allowed to be a pastor. Like, they started, you know, making laws, taking over. A small number from within the German church could not go along. And so they left the, the German evangelical church and, and formed what's called the Confessing Church. Martin Niemöller was one of the key figures in that. And the German authorities, of course, wasn't, weren't going to put up with that. They kept passing laws against it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the ones who, who went with Niemöller and became a key player in this church. And Bonhoeffer would set up training programs for pastors where they would kind of go to a remote location and, and he would train them how, how to be a pastor amidst this, this situation. At the same time, he also wrote a book called... Um, Discipleship, or what's it, the call to discipleship? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he wrote that book in in the midst of this situation. It's a great book. So I've recommended a couple already, but if you have a very good chance, read the Bonhoeffer's book. Um, but you can see it's, it's a call for loyalty to Christ alone. Well, they kept shutting down his seminary. He did it twice, right? The The German authorities wouldn't let him, and he was probably going to get in trouble. So he comes to America, to the great state of New York. In fact, he's in New York City. He got um, hired by Union Seminary to teach. And they were happy to have him. Like, we have this great German theologian. They were going to have him teach there. And so in the summer of 1939, he's safe, right? Things are getting worse and worse in Germany. He's got a safe position. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him stay. He just, he just knew he wasn't settled. And he's like, if I am going to be a pastor for the German people, I have to go back. So he gave up the position, got on a ship in August of 1939 and uh, got back to Germany. Many of you know September 1st, Hitler invades Poland. And it starts. Um, he, he still, you know, in Germany, tried to do the best he can He was involved, including some of his family members, with people who wanted to overthrow Hitler. And before the the war was over, he was sent to prison camp. And just a little before, a few weeks before the, the, uh, the camp was liberated by the Americans, he was hanged. What do you think? Did he make the right choice? Would you have? Would I have? Let me pray. Father, I, I, I like the news of the victory of Jesus a lot better than this. But God, I, I do thank you that no matter what we face, that you will sustain us, that you are victorious through, through your son, that you will give us the inner strength that we can stay faithful to you. Lord Jesus, we believe, we affirm, You are the Savior. You have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go but you? And so, Father, give us such confidence in Christ that there's nothing that would turn us from him. And may now we worship the Savior with all our heart and mind.